It's good to see you guys tonight. Can I have this guy down just a little bit? Because I plan on yelling in a little bit. No, just a little bit. Tonight we start a series. Uh, it's going to be tonight and then three of the nights. I don't ask this very often, but I ask if you're here tonight, give me three more nights. Give me three more because it's going to take me four nights to walk you through the most transformational journey I've ever had in redefining God and who he is. I'm going to share a story and a message that I preached about three or four years ago. And to this day, it's the number one like email I get. Remember when? And, and it was just been this transformational topic for me because I realized even growing up in a great Christian home, having amazing Christian parents, having great Christian friends, going to a great church, going to a Christian college, marrying a Christian woman, I had the wrong ideas of God. I had rooted lies and beliefs that sounded really good and re religious and right, that when confronted were actually strongholds in my belief system. I realized at probably the age of 26, 27, that I actually had misunderstood God my entire life. Half the things that I was afraid of and believed weren't even true. But the things we say every single day, and so tonight I'm just going to give you the appetizer for this. I'm going to describe of why this is something that we need to embrace because from your paradigm and your lens of who you believe God to be is going to set the course for your entire spiritual life. Everything. Last time I did this series, I think we did 12 messages. I'm condensing it to four. So I'm doing a lot of work here for you guys because I'm having mercy on you. But So we're talking about the character of God. And we as Christians have come to believe over time many things about God's nature and his character that are either not even in the Bible or sound like in the Bible, but are completely wrong. Let's get real about who God is, but let's get real about who God isn't. It's one thing to say God is this, but it's also something like God is not this that you've actually thought he is. That's what we're going to uncover because when we point that out, we actually get to know who are we really in relationship with because the lie that I believe about who God isn't, and if that is a belief in my system I hold, it becomes toxic to the relationship I really want to have with the true God. If you like kind of this content in this direction, there's an author, Darren Hufford. He was the one who like opened this lockbox for me. He's got a couple books. One's called um, The God's Honest Truth. If you like that guy or this topic or teaching and you want more of it, that's the guy to go check out. But from this conclusion, I think that God is the most misunderstood, misrepresented person in all of creation. Even as a believer who's loved God for 20 plus years at that time, like I realized like I had totally missed it. And we live in a world where an unchallenged lie becomes truth. What you believe, it sounds good, and oh, that must be real. Unless it's challenged, it actually becomes truth in your belief system. We learn about God from actually a lot of other people. We hear, we, we learn, we're like sponges. And if one person has something wrong, and it's sticky, and it rhymes, and it's on a tattoo, or on a meme, or on a bracelet, like, we embrace it as theology. <laughs> You're like, well, it's got to be true. It's on my necklace, you know? <laughs> Can I give you one? This is tangent. 
Jeremiah 29, 11, and I know half of you have a tattoo, okay? <laughs> I know his plans for me, you know? And they're like, I'm just worrying about the plans for my job, the plans about do I go to school or not, or to marry him and her and whatever, the plans for me. No one has ever read the rest of that verse. It says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. And everyone stops there, like, yes, I'm going to stop there. It says, and when you seek me, you will find me. That's the rest of it. It's not whether you get a job. It's whether you know him. The plans that you would intimately know him, that you really, really would know him. He cares about your job. Don't misunderstand me. But he cares that you actually would know the true God more than you'd have the great job. <laughs> I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but we'll go with it. But we, exp- we just accept these statements because they sound like they ought to be true. And, and unless someone's there to actually say, wait a minute, where is that? I'm a really annoying friend to have these days because I'm like, where in the Bible does it say that? <laughs> I'm like, I think you're misquoting that. Can you help me understand that? I've learned to shut up in my wisdom in my older age here. But lies in your belief system. I'm not trying to guilt him. I'm not trying to put blame. Like, I'm not thinking about your pastor or your parents. I'm not thinking about your youth group leader. Well-intentional people. But unless the lie in your belief system is confronted, it's going to stay there for your entire life. And it'll influence and color. And it'll shape your theology Because most of us, again, we learn not from our own direct relationship. When we're learning about God, we're learning from other people. And it's the ultimate game of telephone, right? Do you guys remember that game? Like you have a phrase, you whisper in someone else's ear, and then they whisper in someone else's ear, and and like 400 people. Now, if I were to go into Jed's ear and I said, we're going to start a phrase, and it's Camille, my wife. It's like, Camille is a loving person who's a veterinarian, and she cures horses. By the end of the room, by the last person here at Eden, she'd probably say, Camille's a veteran and she kills horses. That's probably what it would wind up to be. <laughs> kind of close, but totally different idea. <clears throat> and what happens is we will lie about God accidentally because we've been lied to about God. That little piece of bad theology, that the belief poster, that thing that we have that sounds really good, we'll propagate it, and we actually unintentionally become assassins in the character of God. When we don't study and think about and ask ourselves, who is God? Do we really know this to be true? And unfortunately, most people have made up their minds about God. Not a lot of people are coming to church like, I need to rethink God. (laughs) It's like, that's not what you're usually here to learn about and talk about. And, but that's what this series is, is. I actually want you to think like I am available to rethink what I think about God. I'm not going to talk about five easy steps to do X, Y, Z. Though There's nothing wrong with those messages. I generally want you guys to, for a short time, four weeks, tonight and three other weeks, is to actually say, God, I'm available to have my mind changed about you. Because most people, they don't change their mind. Their minds are completely made up. And unfortunately, a lot of my mind was made up with lies that nobody pointed out. And reading the Bible, it makes nothing better. Reading the Bible, like, because if your lens is broken about God, and if you think God is angry, the word is always going to sound angry to you. 
If you think God is a drill sergeant, every single verse is going to sound like a drill sergeant is yelling it. If you think God has disappointed you, every single word, every letter is going to feel like it's disappointed in you. This is a disaster. And the result is people who believe in God, you can believe in him but not love him. Like, I got the fire insurance, but I don't love this guy. I'm just going to spend eternity with him. That'll be awkward. <clears throat> but who can blame them? Because the God that we've created through this pattern of plain telephone with theology has actually created a God that is actually unlovable. The God that we've fabricated and accumulated all these lies with truth, I'm not trying to say everything is bad, but this God, this coagulation of God is actually unlovable. I believe with the lies we've been told about God, it's virtually impossible to love him if we really confront ourselves with the things we sometimes believe. And it's in our language, like we talk about being committed to God, like it's like this chore. So if I came to him like, oh, it's so hard to be committed to my wife. I'm like, I got an accountability group to be committed to my wife. He'd be like, what's wrong with you? That doesn't sound like love. That sounds like slavery. What are you talking about? But some of us, we talk about a relationship with God as if it's this like, oh, it's like paying taxes or something. It's like, I got to do it. And many Christians are committed to a God with a personality disorder who plays favorites, who sends cancer to his children and creates people just to die and go to hell. 9-11, right? Awful tragedy. Lives destroyed, families ripped apart, children killed, thousands of people crushed by burning rubble, people jumping out of buildings on fire to their death. And yet they're prominent Christian leaders. Leaders, I read their books, who said this is the hand of God who ordained it. This is God's sovereign plan for his glory. I'm like, that's some pretty crappy glory. Like, I don't get it. Like, how do we wind ourselves into human sufferings for God's glory? I don't buy it. Yeah. Or the AIDS epidemic. Pastors, like, will easily talk about how it's, it's the modern-day plague for AIDS to be this epidemic against homosexuals. It's like, really? Really, that's, that's the all-loving, all-good God is the one who sends plagues to a lifestyle and a behavior? And instead, like... I'm not minimizing sin. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm saying the God that we create that sends these, these kinds of, of arbitrary punishments. I swear, if I see someone predict an earthquake in San Francisco again, I'm going to like freak out. But no wonder Christians don't want to read the Bible. No wonder non-believers don't want to hear from you. They're so familiar with all these things that people say God is doing and God is sending and God's judgment and all these different things. And so who would want to read a book by that author? <clears throat> who would want to spend time in prayer with that God? Who would want to talk to him? And we take all these things we believe, we wind up with something that actually resembles a lot more like Satan than it does to God. When you really follow these commitments of these theologies and you run them all the way to the very end, you actually have a description that I think sounds a whole lot more like Satan than it does Jesus. And for some, that's okay. There are Christians who do not mind that God has a complete personality disorder. 
Because loving, loving, believing in a dysfunctional God that you can control and you can change, oh, it's just for his glory. Oh, it's because his sovereign way. Oh, it's because his ways are higher than my ways. Oh, it's because he works in mysterious ways. We have all these different phrases, right, to justify this dysfunctional God. It's easier to have that dysfunctional God rather than to understand his true heart and to know him in reality. Because when we really know him, we can't control him. We really know his heart. It's offensive how beautiful and amazing and simple his heart is. There is a simplicity to God and to Christ that is offensive to us. Says the kingdom is for the children, not for the ones with PhDs. I think it's 1 Corinthians 3, somewhere in there. I normally have these things memorized. But it says, I pray that you would not be deceived like Eve where the devil led her away from the simplicity of Christ. I pray that you would not be led astray from the simplicity of Christ. What does that mean? It means that deep complexity in Christ is probably a work of the enemy. If you are highly confused, if it gets more confusing as you go, if you're like, this makes no sense, it's actually probably the work of the devil. I really like that. The simplicity of Christ is offensive because it's so simple. And Jesus is like, the kingdom is for the children. I have a four-year-old. And she gets Jesus. She like brought our dog to salvation. I have no idea how that's going to work later. <clears throat> but she gets it. I'm not like trying to like, oh, well, let's just open up Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, you know, book and let's talk about it. And like it's, there's a simplicity to Christ that's available for us that's authentic and it's too simple, it's too obvious. But Christians have an addiction to overcomplicating things, don't we? It's always complicated. Christian dating relationships, the most complicated. <clears throat> the revelations, these next few weeks, they're so simple, they're going to offend you. Why? It's because we as Christians, we're kind of like cats. Anybody own a cat? We need to have some deliverance in this room. A cat has a little ball with a feather on it or something. It just can't go and bat the ball with a feather. It has to, like, get behind something and, like, make it really difficult and, like, you know, hide behind here and, like, roll over and miss it. Like, it makes it so complicated. It enjoys the complexity. It's like, just, what are you doing? And that's what we do... With our theology, we make it unnecessarily complicated. The sad thing is there's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of books to be sold. There's a lot of pastoral positions to be filled, all with people who rely on making you confused about the kingdom. That shouldn't get me in trouble, but it might. The secret of the kingdom is not that everyone needs to go to that guy to have it explained. The, the secret of the kingdom is that we all participate, we all understand. And the things have been so complicated, a lot of Christianity these days are dependent upon the Christian experts. We can't just like share the gospel and we have to like, I got to take it to the guy who's paid to do this. And we've completely missed it. Why? It's because we're so out of touch with God's heart. When, we, when you encounter the simplicity of God's heart, you are the, the greatest evangelist that's ever walked the earth. 
And so that's what this series is about. It's creating this broken paradigm, the broken lenses that we have put on. So take notes, immerse yourselves, and be here for it. And the goal is to restore you to a true, simple view of God and unleash a real, true relationship with God. There might be things you have to, like, leave at the altar at the end of the series because, like, I've been carrying all this complexity unnecessarily. And it's going to feel weird, and it's going to be off, and you're going to have to kind of start over. I had, like, this renaissance of my faith late into my 20s. It's like, I've known this my entire life, but I know none of this, you know? So where do we begin? How do we even approach having our minds changed about God? How do we even begin to say, God, I need a refresher, I need a renewal, I need a aha, where do I start in that conversation? We start it here, is that God is love. Now this might sound like the biggest anticlimactic letdown of a sermon point ever, but we're going to go somewhere with it. Every definition and understanding of God must pass through one filter. This is ground zero for where we must start. And it's John, 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. He defines himself. God is love. And in the most simple terms. And love can only have one definition, and it can never contradict itself. Love is what it is, and that's all it is. It's kind of like God said to Moses, I am who I am. Love is what it is. When God says, I am love, it's very similar to, I am who I am. Love is what it is. The problem is that what we believe in our heart to be love is actually, in many ways, the opposite of God. We think we know love, and God says he's love, but our idea and definition of love is actually pretty messed up. What happens is we have a messed up version of God. Or it goes the other way. You have a messed up version of God. Guess what? You're going to have a messed up version of love. The two are completely inseparable. Our hearts and our minds have learned to adopt manipulation, deceit, meanness, anger, judgment, betrayal, selfishness, and we like stamp and we call it love. You talk to abusive men. Well, I don't talk to them, but they'll say, in justifying their abuse, whether to a wife or child, like, I just love them so much. What? Like, yeah, I get that. No, I don't. I, I love them so much like I'm abusive. I love them so much I drive by their house every night to see who they're talking to. I love them so much I manipulate them into staying with me. We will justify any behavior in the name of love. <clears throat> and even when... No, I won't go there. <laughs> But if God is love, then we can understand his heart by accurately understanding love. So rather than try and get all theologically like, deep with you, it's like, why don't we, if God says he's love, let's like approach understanding God's character from love. It's time to look at God not through theology, books, or history, or stories, or apologetics, which I love all those things, but it's, let's define God by how he defines himself. He says, I am love. God is love. And then we have in 1 Corinthians 13, the definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. In this passage is the keys to unlocking who God is. And the only one I'm going to get to tonight, because I've, 
ramped you up here is to start with love is patient. And God is patient. Who is God? God is patient. They might think that's the second most anticlimactic sermon point I've ever heard. Here's why not. You think you know what patience means, but you don't. You think, oh, duh, love is patient. I've heard that at a wedding a million times. I know exactly what that means. Why? Because our definition of patience isn't patience at all. Some of us will find out tonight that we have never actually known God to be patient because we've never known what patience really is. The very first ingredient to God's character, God is patient. You're like, what's next? It's like, wait, wait, wait. You don't know what this is. Why? Patience is really hard for us to understand. We never identify patience as something in of itself. Let me let sink in. We never identify patience as something in of itself. It's always defined and created meaning from what it's opposed to, the opposite. It's a counterpart to other extremes. Instead of accepting patience as it is, sometimes we feel it must be opposed to or instead of something much worse. We think anger, wrath, unrestraint are the other ends of patience. We don't think that patience really even exists without there being anger, sudden violence, outrage, and wrath. And so when we think about patience, we really think about what you're not doing, not who you are. We think of like, God is patient. Patient against what? That's really what our belief system builds. God's patient, and we don't think... Patience is a stand on itself. We actually think about what is God resisting that he has so much self-control? When you think of patient people, you don't think of people that are just wonderful, everything's going well, not a care in the world, everything's great. You don't say they're patient. It's only the person who's got a crappy job with a crappy coworker with a difficult circumstance that they really want to just like go AWOL on everybody, but don't. They're like, they're so patient. <laughs> oh, they have amazing patience. We measure patience by, man, I don't have that kind of self-control because I would go all crazy there. Those are the most patient people we identify with, Right? The more terrible things a person has to endure and not explode, the more patient they are. It reveals that we are associating patience as the willpower to refrain from all the horrible things we actually really want to do. Patience is impatience. Patience is I'm restraining myself from doing all the horrible things that I really would like to do. And in there lies the lie about God. God is patient. You're really saying, God really wants to destroy me, but he won't. He's really angry with me, but he's like kind of holding it back. He really is, is going to like let me have it, but he's like kind of thinking about it. And by this definition, patience is really just a gigantic plug that's placed over the top of a rumbling volcano. That's what we believe patience to be. 
And our understanding of patience in this way has made us believe in our hearts that patience with God and patience is really about holding back anger. When we say love is patience, our heart is really saying that love is actually really angry, but it does a really good job of not releasing it. And we say that God is patient. He's actually really angry, but he's just doing a really good job in maintaining self-control. And it's in this mindset that when we say God is patient, we're really thinking that God is angry. And we need to confront that specific lie and ask ourselves, is God really angry, but he's doing a good job of restraining himself? No. But every single time we hear God is patient, we affirm that lie. I'm going to tell you why and and how it's misleading, but before I do, even how we teach about God giving us patience is really screwy. If you've ever sat through a sermon like talking about patience, how do you get more patience? Or like, don't you dare ever pray for patience because you all know what's going to happen, right? Like you're all like terrified, right? Like, how do you develop more patience? You ask God and he will give you circumstances to develop patience. He's like, you want more patience? God is going to give you circumstances that test you and try you He's going to give you circumstances to teach you more patience. In essence, you are asking God to curse you. I've never prayed for more patience. Because I'm like, I don't, no, no. I'm not praying for flat tires and, you know, relational drum. I'm not praying for any of that stuff. I'm like, God, like, give me some other way. And like, I've, I've been terrified. I'm like, God, I, I know I need to be better patient, but I'm not going to ask because I don't want that circumstance to fall on my head. <laughs> but basically, we fear because when we ask God for patience, he's going to send this like Job-style tribulation hellfire onto our life. At the end of it, we're going to have patience. But people embrace the trials. Just two days ago, I was at lunch. This guy talking about all this calamity that's going on. I was like, yeah, God just really like showed me. You know, he like needed to show me something. And he brought all these things. And I'm like, Mm-mm-mm-mm. like try not to jump out of my skin to say, no, it's not that way. It's not that way at all. Do the scriptures say that you can learn patience from circumstances? No. It sounds biblical, doesn't it? You need patience? Just have a circumstance that will give you patience. Completely unbiblical. Well, they really think it's actually perseverance. Again, remember that game of telephone? That a circumstance can build perseverance. Totally different concept than patience. Not even the same idea. Plus, patience is the fruit of the Spirit. You don't need to have a circumstance to give you something that came with the Holy Spirit. How about that? You need to develop more patience. I got the Holy Spirit. I think I'm sufficient. Now, I need to learn to walk in it, possibly. Sure. Do I need missiles to fall on my house for me to be more patient? No. That was a little more violent than I wanted to come out. (laughs) If patience were something you could learn through pressure or trauma, it wouldn't be the fruit of the Spirit. Consider this. John 14, 26 says the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. You need a lesson in patience? No problem. 
Patience is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. Let me ask you, is there any circumstance in your life that is more qualified to teach you about patience than the Holy Spirit? I wasn't actually asking, but I'm glad that some people thought boldly to say no. There's no, let me say it the other way. There's no circumstance in your life that actually can teach you patience better than the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that you can't derive patience from circumstances. I'm just saying that you're like taking the, the slow, scenic route on it. When the Holy Spirit's ready to teach you all things, everything. True patience is a result of love, but also of understanding. Are you guys doing okay? True patience is a result of love, but also understanding. When you truly love someone, you understand their heart. When you understand their heart, you find patience. Have you ever been on an airplane with like a childish like scream in their head off? Sorry, that was our kids. <clears throat> Actually, there's a we we're on a flight back and our little son, Maverick, he was a year and a half at the time. And he, like, is the size of a four-year-old right now. But he's, like, a year and a half. He's in a car seat, you know, shoehorned in this air, airplane seat, last leg back to Sacramento. It's super late. And he's, like, bucking, kicking, shrieking. And you see the heads of these people in front just, like, you can see their eyes roll from just, like, the back of their heads. And they're just, like, oh. And for about three or four hours... He's just going at, I'm like trying to do whatever. He's like, he's got this like dolphin seal or dolphin squeal kind of scream. And these people are just like, oh, and you know, I don't know if they're sharpening knives in front of me. I don't know what, but people in the plane, like they were looking stressed. So we get back late in the morning because the time change, we're up super early. So like, what do we do? It's like, let's go to the farmer's market, I guess. So we go to the farmer's market, (laughs) strolling around. The kids are jet-lagged. Maverick just, both kids just lose their minds. And we're like walking, and Maverick's like, dolphins squeal, and who do we like walk past? The same couple from the airline, and they're like... (laughs) You, they, they could not believe that we were in front of them. Now, screaming children, there's a phase in my life I'm like, where's the duct tape? Someone get a taser. Like, I just didn't get it. It's like I, I lose patience in about four and a half milliseconds for a screaming child. Now, like, I have my own. I just feel bad for the parents. I'm like, I'm so sorry. But when you don't under, have understanding, you completely lose patience. You, you never even have it, right? So you're on an airplane maybe with our kids, and they're going wild. You're like, oh, Stop it! Give me your plugs. Now, so take that, right? No patience. Now, say you're a nurse. Say you're a nurse. Angela Clark just became a nurse. Hallelujah. And say you are in the emergency room. You hear screaming coming in, and it's a little child who's spilled boiling water over their front. And you're cutting off the clothes. Their skin is stuck to the clothes, peeling off, and the kid is crying. Are you going to get impatient? No. Why? It's because you have utter and complete understanding for the child. You'd be screaming too. 
And when you love someone and have understanding, you will also see the burned baby in everything they do. Love looks beyond the flesh and to the heart. When you have understanding like God has understanding for you, there's not a shred of impatience in him. People who lack patience are actually blind to the heart. People who lack patience are blind to the heart. The truth is, why is God as patient? Because he fully loves and fully understands you. It's not like he's looking at you as like some weird child is screaming here on the plane. Where is that coming from? No, he fully loves you, fully understands you. He doesn't see you. He always sees the burned baby in all of us. He sees directly to our hearts. He knows us better than ourselves and he looks straight to you. And so many of us, like we resist compliments. We resist compliments because secret like, well, if you really knew me, you might not say that. If you really knew about me or you knew kind of my struggle in my past, you really wouldn't say that. And sometimes we forget that God knows, he loves, and understands fully. And the biggest revelation from this when you realize is that God might, you might be completely surprised about how pleased God is with your heart. You're focused on no God, no God, no God. And, he, and you will be shocked to know how pleased God is with your heart because he fully loves you, fully understands you. But teachers, pastors, preachers have a profound effect on building a case for an impatient God. I mean, I get it. Preaching and teaching, like, all you need to do is cherry pick a scripture that kind of insinuates you might go to hell if you don't repent, and the whole front's filled. You can manipulate people with the Bible. It's Satan twisted the scriptures, right? He used scriptures to try and get Jesus to commit suicide, jumping off the temple tower. So the devil knows how to use scripture, knows how to use it against you. But teachers and preachers who, who want to rally a big altar call, all they need to do is reinforce a lie that God is impatient with you and he's waiting for you to mess up enough to send you to hell. One of the reasons I struggle with always fearing I was losing my salvation. I don't know who it was, but some point in my life I developed this, this complete and utter fear. It probably was having to do with my struggles as a child too, but this utter fear that God always had a hand on the lever to a trap door to hell. It was like, I just hope I didn't overdo it. I meet Christians who are regularly fearful that they're going to lose their salvation. And the church usually can have an impatience with people too. That when you get saved, it's like, well, sinning is no longer ever going to happen in your life. What? You sinned? You know, like, and we're all works in progress, amen? I'm not justifying sin, amen? Not justifying at all. Some of us, it's going to take us a long time to fully walk in the victory of Christ. It took me a long time. But sometimes when we don't reach that point, the church can lose patience with them and boot them out. It didn't happen fast enough, soon enough, still. And that, that tendency for us to have patience, but only to a certain degree, and then we say, you know, you're just, you need to go somewhere else where God can really have a breakthrough with you. That's where we get the phrase, Christians shoot their wounded. But don't underestimate me. I'm not trying to minimize the consequences of sin. I'm not trying to rationalize sin or suggest you go and go get crazy or whatever that. I'm just saying to impersonate God as someone who's about to pull the trapdoor lever to hell is not 
helpful for someone's spiritual formation. And it actually puts a big, what you are trying to do in bringing them to God, you're actually making them run from God. You might gain their soul, but they will never give their heart. Someone who threatens their continual release of their salvation and eternal damnation might comply with God enough to be saved, but will never have an intimate relationship with God. God is not irritated with people in their struggle because irritated implies losing patience. When my little girl was learning to walk, she's about 14 months, it wasn't like, it's 14 months, it's time for you to walk. And then she started taking steps and like fell down. I wasn't like, you little failure, you. You know, like someday she would like to like take a couple steps and then she would take like two weeks and like just crawl. How terrible of a father would I be if like after two weeks, like that's it, I'm done with you. Like it doesn't make sense. But we're so quick to personify God as someone who's going to discard us. We don't get our act together, and he's impatient with us, and he's going to freak out. And, and it's just we personify God in such a way that makes sense to us, but we would never do it in reality with our own kids. That's the most transformational thing for me, becoming a father, as I realize these crazy things I believe about God, I would never do to my kids. If I would never do them to my kids, how much more great is my God? But when you understand that patience is actually looking at the end result with total understanding, like, she's going to learn to walk. It's going to be fine. I know it. She's not going to be 40 years old, still, like, you know, trying to scoot and crawl. Like, she's going to figure it out. You have patience. When God looks at you, again, he sees the full picture. Why is God patient with you? It's because he's infinitely committed to you. Let's let this sink in. Eternity is kind of a long time. Eternity is kind of a long time, and he's infinitely committed to you. It's impossible to lose patience for someone that you've committed all eternity to. God said, I'm, I'm in this for the long haul, longer than the long haul. When you're committed to someone to that degree, you don't lose patience. It says that, Never will I leave you nor forsake you. Ephesians 1.18 says that you are Christ's reward, that you are the prize and treasure. Like, you get eternal life and Christ gets you. It's amazing. What happens when you're not committed to people? We have no patience. Just like ask me, like, 5.15 on the 50 freeway. I'm like, seriously, guy? Like, now? Like, you know... When we don't know the person, we're not committed to them, we have road rage, we're about to like punch them through the window, like we're saying all sorts of things to them. Because we don't love them and we're not committed to them. It's no surprise that we have no patience for them. But God has committed to you forever. And the good news is that for those who don't know God yet, he's committed to them forever too. Because 1 Timothy 2.4 says God is not desiring anyone to perish and he paid for all the sins of the entire world, 1 John 2.2, Amen. So God thought of every single person on the Christ was committed to them for eternity, regardless if they commit back to him. And so God is never going to be impatient with the lost, or the unsaved, ever. We should never like partner with fear into bringing them to him because God says, I'm committed to them forever. I'm waiting for my heart to be revealed, but all you Christians keep giving me a bad rap. 
Maybe they don't want to come to me because they've heard about me from you (laughs) and all the funky things you say. This is the last part. God is patient because he knows the full story. There's nothing in your life that God's surprised about. Anybody in this series 24 a number of years ago? So intense. You're just like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? You know, you're just like, crazy, what's going to happen? So then about two months ago, came back on. I was like, I remember this. I was like, this is really good. But I I didn't have that intensity fear like, is this going to work out? There's like 19 seasons left. I don't know what's going to happen. Is he going to live? Of course he lives, you know. When I watch it a second time, yeah. I, of course, Jack Bauer, like, you see him on the promos. You know, in season two, he's around for season seven. It's not that spoiler of alert. <clears throat> but when you watch it a second time, you know what's going to happen. Are you nervous? Are you anxious? Do you think, like, oh, this is the director's cut? It's a totally different story. Like, you don't think of that. <laughs> and God looks the same way you. He knows everything. Why would God be impatient? Is it like he's being surprised? He's like, I didn't know this was going to happen. Of course not. He looks at you with pure delight, utter and complete patience, not present with any anger, not present with any frustration. He's not holding back anything. He's not waiting to throw a lightning bolt or do anything against you because he sees the full story. He's committed to you for the full eternity of eternity. God is patient. He's not looking to strike you down. He's not resisting. He's not relenting. He's not holding anything back. He's patient because he's patient, and it's a patience that we have never, ever experienced. Let me close with this story. This is how my regular relationship with God was. I'm going to give it to you in the story that I don't know if I wrote or if I stole it from somebody else. So if I stole it from somebody else, I'm sorry. <laughs> so let's say your dad says, son, I need you to water the back. But don't leave the hose out and make sure to turn the water off. Yeah, 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 I got it, Dad. You go out there like you're watering and everything. You set the hose down. You get distracted like, hey, 14 likes my Instagram. Like you like totally trail off. Just totally like us. You're like, hey, I'm going to go grab some pizza with Shad and, and, and you leave. And you leave for five hours and you get a text message. The hose was left on. And the basement is flooded. And you're thinking, like, when dad gets home, oh. And you're like, can I volunteer for church before I go home? Can I, like, you know, rescue some animals? Can I serve the homeless? Like, you're willing to do anything. I've been in trouble before. And trust me, I was, like, vacuuming, doing dishes. I was, like, trying to, like, piece it all together before I had the wrath. And, and what happens is that you're, like, you're totally stressed out. When he finds out, he's going to be ticked off. I'm just going to shut off my phone so I don't even like hear. I'm just going to like take the slow road in. I'm going to like find out later. And and so you're completely weary. You're going to delay and stall the confrontation because you know it's going to be bad. You know you you did exactly what you weren't supposed to do. You know the consequences are bad. You know it's expensive and your parents can't afford it and all those different things. And if you try to like put space and do good things on home and you're like you pray, like you get home and, and the parents are like there eating dinner. Son, you want some, your favorite dish, they plop it on, sit at the table, and you're like, sure. You're like, is this the last meal? 
And dad's like, hey, son, how's the time with the friends? I'm like, good. <laughs> yeah, was it good? Like, what else happened? Like, and, and, the, and the conversation completely carries on. And you're like, wait, what happened? Like, I know I messed up. I know I did this where it totally ruined the bottom. Oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ironically, some guy came by the house, carpenter, he had all the materials, all the supplies, and he like fixed it all for free. Amazing. I think his name was Jesus or something like that. <laughs> no big deal. No big deal. What else is going on? I wasn't sure if you guys were going to laugh at that because that's really corny. This is actually really bad. I'm really glad you guys laughed. <laughs> right there is the picture. Come on with me. <laughs> right there is the picture of our continual fear of coming back to God. We're convinced. Oh, man, I did exactly what I wasn't supposed to do. And he's going to be mad. I have to face the consequences. I have to come back and I have to feel bad and I have to mow the lawn for seven weeks. And he doesn't even bring it up. Do you remember that Isaiah 43, 25 says, I blot out your sins and for my own sake I remember them no more. The illustration is exactly how the father looks at you. He's not thinking about what you did. It was already taken care of. In fact, it was taken care of 2,000 years ago. He's like, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. How are you? What's going on? And so many of us, we refuse to go home because we think the only thing the Father wants to talk about is how we flooded the basement. We're so afraid of having that talk. We're so afraid of having what he's going to say and reminding us, I told you not to. And I, I get that, like, as a father's like, Scott, I told you don't hit your son. Like, I, I get that. That's earthly parenting. I don't have a good analogy for the father. I'm just saying our father, he took care of it all. He does not want you to be fearful of him and his patience because he's not thinking about it. He's not resisting. He's not holding back. He's not storing up. None of that. If you need a paradigm shift in your heart, if this is kind of resonating, have a blank slate before Jesus. Just make yourself and your heart available to have your mind changed, your heart shaped. Because God is fully in understanding of who you are and of your heart, and he fully sees you from the, ending to the, from the end to the beginning. And it's impossible for him to be impatient. Why? Because he is eternally committed to you. It's not of his nature to be angry with you or frustrated with you. So if you need a paradigm shift, examine what you believe in your heart. Don't be afraid to question these things. We're going to have a lot of fun in these next three weeks. I love you guys.